0: bless the Lord bless the Lord it's good to be with you again it's good to be following Christ exalting exuberant adoration and praise it's good it's good to let a watching world know that the policies and procedures are not the final word But our God, this is Blueprint Church known all around the world for having amassed such an eclectic and diverse contingent of people who all seem to have something in common. They think he should be lifted high. Am I in the right place this morning? This is Blueprint, right? It's a church on every block, so I might have came into the wrong building. Okay, I'm 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 in Blueprint. hmm 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 Again, um, to Pastor Dehati in his absence, the other elders, um, to you, Blueprint. just want to say thank you for having me. I'm gonna go before the Lord, ask for His help. And try to make the most of our time in the scriptures. Ah, Gracious God and Father. (laughs) You created a world. You don't need us. You chose to make us. You sent your son to redeem us. You're coming back for us. (laughs) This is some in-between time stuff. May the in-between time be yours. May you help me right now, even as I feel your help to bring energy needed to convey a message that is to your glory and for our good. If there's anyone in here that is not part of the people of God, help them, one, to see it, then to hear the good news that they can be brought into the faith by grace through faith in Christ alone. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been said, and I believe rightly, at least three major surprises await anyone who winds up in heaven. The first surprise will be, who's there? The second surprise will be, who's not there? the third will be that you are there. The surprise will be who's there? The drunk you thought. Maybe the the, the shifty politician that you couldn't stand. The vulgar rap or rock star. The racist and the bigot transformed by the grace of God. There. What? One of my pastors at my old church used to say, well, he's no longer at the church, still a church I'm a part of. But he used to say the next Billy Graham could be in the bar right now. Who's not there? Some of your favorite preachers. What would happen if you get to heaven and realize they're not there? Some of the most successful looking pastors may not be there. The vegan philanthropist who recycles, some of them won't be there. And that you'll be there. And well, you know you, and I know me. The only people who will wind up in eternity in good standing are those befriended sinners who met the friend of sinners. The only people who will wake up and realize I'm in heaven, as though it were, I'm on the other side, will be befriended sinners. Who met the friend of sinners. And this friend of sinners meets sinners and turns sinners into saints. This is what he does. He is the God of salvation. He turns sinners into saints. And so today I want to just revisit just, in, just a classic instinct of the Christian to make much of the God who is the friend of sinners... And who befriends them so that those sinners are made saints. This is the instinct of everybody who gets newly saved. I don't know about you but I don't know if you have a BC and an AD kind of like way that you understand your own life. Some people you were always sort of around Christian stuff and you just kind of eased into the faith and you don't remember a time when you pivoted because you kind of just sort of slid into the faith by being around Christian people. But some people know I once was lost but now I'm found. I once was blind but now I see. I used to run capers but now I run for the Lord Jesus I used to rap in one way but now I rap in a different way I used to sing in another way and for different purposes but now I all I'm saying is there comes a time when some people recognize I was befriended and then I was made a friend this is what I want to talk about perhaps you've heard the debate around what does it mean to be evangelical I'm not talking about a political evangelical. I'm not talking about a cultural evangelical. Many of us will say, well, I think a theological evangelical is someone who buys into a set of, uh, of tenets, a set of pillars. One is we believe that the Bible is where we get um, information from. And if it doesn't agree with the Bible rightly understood, then we just kind of part ways with it. We call that biblicism. We also believe in something called crucicentrism. That's just a way to say that we focus out of everything that's in the Bible and we don't overlook anything. We kind of make sure that we put an emphasis on what happens at the cross because the cross is the place where everything else starts to make sense. It's only in light of the cross that you can understand why God sends a son to die, right? It's only by recognizing the cross that you recognize what slaying lambs were about and parting red seas was about and giving women who were barren babies. All of that is made, uh, understood in light of the cross. Crucicentrism. Activism. We believe that the faith should not just be your words, but they should have shoe leather and you should beat the pavement. Activism. And then lastly, conversionism we believe that people must be converted that they must go from what I once was but now I'm that's something that everybody doesn't believe something that everybody doesn't emphasize blueprint I'm here to just remind you that a true Christian instinct says I have been befriended by the friend of sinners and therefore I want to help others to meet the friend of sinners who turns sinners into saints Roe versus Wade, the decision that's just been overturned by the Supreme Court is an argument that's going to force us to get to the real nitty gritty. When are we talking about life? When is it life? There are people who believe they have a right to take what they probably will say is not technically life. So in other words, if you're confused about when life begins and what is life, you'll be confused about death. Well, there's a spiritual life that people are confused about. When are you truly alive? When does God recognize you as alive to him? And when are you dead to him? Today, I want to just visit a passage of scripture that talks about when a man who was dead got made alive. And then we're going to see what happened afterwards. So I'm going to be in Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. It's been read. So now let's just walk through it. Mark 2, 13 to 17. Calling sinners and making saints. Calling sinners and making saints. Mark chapter 2. Let you know, first, that Jesus is proactive and powerful in bringing sinners to himself. Jesus is proactive and powerful in bringing sinners to himself. Look at the text, 13 and 14. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now... Mark's Gospel is the compact Gospel. It's the succinct Gospel. It's the Gospel you go to when you don't need all the fillers and all the fluff. He just gives you the bullet points so you kind of have to know from just what you know in Scripture that this is an event that took place. Jesus is here being proactive in seeing a sinner and saving a sinner. Why do you say that? Because in Mark's Gospel, Jesus is on the way somewhere. In other words, this is Jesus proactively being on the move. It says he went out again. He went out again. Mark is the one that's going to tell you that he was intentional. The Lord Jesus wasn't just around there kind of just, you know, meandering, kind of hanging with his friends and, oh, okay, nice to meet you. No, he was always going out. He was going out very intentionally. He was going out very routinely. He went out again, verse 13 says, by the sea. He went out strategically. He goes out by the Sea of Galilee. It was said that Judea is the road or on the way to nowhere, but Galilee is on the way to everywhere. He went to the thing that would lead him to the things. He went to the place where the people were. He went to the place where the activity was popping. Jesus always went where there was someone to seek out. He went out purposefully. It says he went out. And then the crowd was coming to him, so he was teaching them. This word is in the tense that says that the crowds kept coming and he kept teaching. That he kept coming and they, and they kept coming and he kept teaching. Fifteen times in Mark's gospel, it talks about Jesus primarily by his teacher role. A lot of people think Jesus was a miracle worker. Well, he wasn't just a miracle worker. He wasn't just flinging miracles around. Jesus never said, I've come here to do miracles. No, but he did say, I've come here to preach. I've come here to teach. I've come here to give you the mind of God so that you would understand. Like our sister was saying earlier, the way of God and the mind of God, the wisdom of God, he heralds it, which means he yells it. He teaches it, which means he unpacks it. He speaks it, which means it's just ordinary conversation for the Lord Jesus. How many of you know the word of God in such a way and know the God of the word in such a way that you will take any avenue to yell it if you have to yell it, unpack it if you get some time, and to just converse with it? your way of life this is what Jesus did he's proactive and he's a friend of sinners that's seeking sinners verse 14 as he passed by he saw Levi the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth and said to him follow me what catches his eye again Jesus is there Galilee it's everything is going on and yet what catches his eye out of all the things that's happening by the Sea of Galilee a sinner sitting in the act of the sin because it's a tax collector at the booth collecting the taxes (laughs) now you don't know but tax collectors were people that were viewed inherently negatively this is Jesus looking and saying now I'm seeing you and what you're doing is actually the very thing that gives you the bad reputation and yet you catch my eye how is it that that person catches his eye that's not who we would be looking for. We would be looking past. This reminds you of Zacchaeus, another tax collector that the Bible says, Zacchaeus, I'm scheduled to come to your house today. Jesus is proactive in seeking out sinners. You see, he's not just seeker sensitive. In what way is Jesus seeker sensitive? Well, he's a, he seeks, not seekers, but he seeks sinners. This is somebody who's unexpected, undeserving, and unwanted. This this tax collector is viewed so negatively in his society that the Jews didn't even let them in synagogue. A Jew would not let them testify in court. You weren't even supposed to accept a handout, alms, from a tax collector. That's just how negatively this person would have been seen. So Levi is seen negatively, yet he catches Jesus' eye. That's because Jesus always has an eye for people who are out of relationship with him. He always has a heart toward people who are not checking for him. Jesus sees them and he seeks them. This is what he does. Levi, unwanted by the people, undeserved according to God's principles, yet Jesus proactively calls him to himself. He not only is proactive, he's powerful. Look at the way Mark says it. He said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed them. Now, for us, that just looks like Jesus said, hey, you come here. No, that's not. Follow me is the word that's used for follow me as my disciple. And he rose and followed him. Now, watch this. Immediately before this, a paralytic was laying down to 11 to 12. And Jesus says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose immediately and picked up his bed and went out. Now he says, follow me, and he rose, and he followed him. In other words, Jesus comes, and with a powerful word, he loosens the shackles that had you bound in your sin, just like he loosened the shackles of the paralysis of the lame man. The same Jesus that has a word that can make legs that don't walk, (laughs) walk is the same Jesus that can take the spiritual you that's sitting and sleeping on him and raise it and give you energy to pursue him and to come to him Jesus says follow me 19 times in Mark's gospel he says something like follow me which means leave something and come this way the disciples left the business and they came and they followed him people left their homes and they followed him today you could say we leave our boyfriends or our girlfriends when they're out of step with the will of God and we follow him have you ever left anything to follow him it's one thing if nothing's going on Every now and then, somebody will reject Jesus because they have a promising career, get an injury, and now that that career can't, you know, can't go on, then they come. Praise God that they come, but I'm saying a lot of people, they only come because the thing they were going to do didn't work out. But a true follower says, even if I have to leave it because... Think about the disciples. They caught the biggest catch of fish in their life. And it says, and then they left their nets and they followed him. The same thing happens here. Leave your former routines and follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. Leave your idols, which for Levi would have been money and schemes, and I will give you true riches. Leave your life, which has got me on the fringes, and follow me with me on the center I'm just saying, this is why the songwriter says, let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also, all right? The Bible makes clear that Jesus calls you to follow him. And right now he's looking in this church and he's saying, can I get somebody to follow me? Is there anyone who will follow me? Does anybody hear the powerful call of the proactive Christ that sent an, a, a preacher in? The one who comes in once a month to this church to have this connection with you. And guess what? Holly said, you can preach on whatever you want this time. I said, good. I'll just say, Jesus says, follow me. <laughs> His, his response is immediate, it's definite, and it's permanent because we know that this Levi is also called Matthew. Matthew, here, he, Jesus meets him, he's an extortionist. Now we know Matthew because of Matthew's gospel in the Bible, he's now an evangelist. It's the Jesus who meets extortionists and turns them into evangelists. There's a man by the name of John Newton And you know John Newton because John Newton is the one who gave us this idea of, like, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That's the one who penned that. He used to own slaves. And then he became an abolitionist against slavery because he followed him. I'm just saying. I used to be a weed head. I'm just saying. I used to go where you hunt with the hounds and you run with the rabbits, as my father would say. And yet God grabbed me, and I remember when he grabbed me, he changed me, sensual to celibate. How many of you all know that Jesus will take somebody, change them? Listen, one day I was talking to a friend of mine because he was walking around looking so godly, and he told me he used to smoke. I said, you used to smoke trees? He said, that's nothing to celebrate. I said, I'm not celebrating that you used to smoke trees. I'm celebrating that I would have never thought it. (coughs) You look so transformed. Transformation. People get it twisted. Sometimes they see the goody two-shoes you and they think that's what you've always been. Sometimes you may think, this is how I've always been. No, one day you heard the powerful voice of Jesus say, follow me. And you got up and you followed him. This is what Jesus is saying. This is what Lazarus heard when, when he was in the tomb and couldn't get out on his own. It took the powerful word of Jesus. Lazarus come forth and he came out. John chapter 5 says there's going to come a time where everybody in the grave, it says an hour is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. Have you heard his call? Have you heard his call? The question is, why would a holy God call such an unholy people to himself like Levi, like me and like you? Well, that goes to our next point. Jesus' purpose for receiving sinners is for his own joy and for their joy. In other words, Jesus does it because he gets a kick out of it. (laughs) Jesus saves people like you and me because he delights in that. Uh, Verse 15, we leave, follow me, and he followed him to a party. Verse 15, and as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. It's like Mark just quickly shifts the scene to the night, the after party, the party at night. When, you know, rappers are known for doing videos. They have the daytime where they're kind of rapping and flexing, and yaw, 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 but they always have a night scene so they can throw on fresher gear and the ladies can throw on fresher gear and it's a night scene and they always partying. This is what Mark does. Early in the day Jesus is in his Thames as though it were and he's walking down to see a Galilee and he's like follow me and people are following him and they're dropping their old lives and they're coming to him and then it says time, he's reclining at table in the house with people reclining with him and this is a celebration. In other words, he wants you to know that this is a a joyous occasion. The word reclining is a word that's used to describe meals that are more feasts and festivals. See, for us, if we were going to eat, we'd be sitting at the table. In their culture, when it was a party party, when it was a festival, when it was a feast, you reclined and you laid kind of around the table and you laid on each other. So it says here that Jesus is reclining because he's in party mode. And it says they are reclining with him because they're in party mode. What the Bible wants you to know is when someone gets saved, salvation leads to celebration. Because Jesus has joy. And they have joy that Jesus has joy in them. Joy is the mood. Luke fifteen seven for you note takers more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need to repent. Jesus says, you know what? I could just be chilling. 99 people in their right place. Everything is cool. One goes off and the repentance will make me rejoice. Luke 15, 10, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Hebrews 12, 2, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Philippians 1, 21, I want to be with Christ, but for your progress and joy in the faith. What I'm telling you is it's not just so you'll be right and righter. It's not so you won't be mean and less mean. It's not get saved because there's a fire to avoid. That's not how the Bible talks about it, though that true is an incentive. It's because there's joy awaiting you that you're searching for in all the wrong places, but Jesus says all you got to do is have a party with me at the party. I want to bring you to a party where I'm at the party. I am the party. The joy of redeeming is he likes it, and they like it. Sometimes people will go out here to save people so they can have a better neighborhood. Save people so they can get a better marriage. Save people. I know people who are barely saved. So saying, you need to get you a saved man. You need a good man, right? Or you need to get you a, like whatever it is, right? That was coming to America. Don't see it, but if you saw it, remember that? Well, you don't need a, you can't go to the club for no girl. They got to get you a church girl. Right? but it's not for their joy it's for our joy back in the days when they were thinking to christianize negro slaves the thought was if they were saved they'd be better workers if they were saved they'd have better morals if they saved that society would have a again a more clean society and so one of the chief architects of defending this notion is a man by the name of Cotton Mathers. You may not know him, but one time, this is what he tells his group of fellow slave owners. He says, oh, lost my place. He says, to convert one soul unto God is more than to pour, cut 10,000 talents into the baskets of the poor. That means give a lot of money to the poor. Truly to raise a soul from a dark state of ignorance and wickedness to the knowledge of God and the belief of Christ and the practice of a holy and loving religion, it's the noblest work that ever was undertaken among the children of men. An opportunity to endeavor the conversion of a soul from a life of sin, which is indeed a woeful death to fear God and love Christ is by a religious life to escape the path of the destroyer. It cannot but be acceptable to all that have have themselves had in themselves the experience of such a conversion. Now it's old, so that's why the language is sounded funny. But he's saying basically anybody who's been saved would want somebody else to be saved. Watch this. And such is an opportunity there is in your hands, O oh, all you that have any Negroes in your houses, an opportunity to try whether you may not be the happy instruments of converting the blackest instances of blindness and baseness into admirable candidates of eternal blessedness. Let not this opportunity be lost if you have any concern for your soul or your own or others." In other words, what he said was, back in the days, he said, I think we should convert the Negro slaves because that's what you should want for them. He says, this is good work. And then he began to articulate, there'll be better workers. You'll get more done. You'll make more profit. And then he argued with others. But that doesn't mean we should free them. And he would go to Negroes and say, see, it's a lot of y'all that like to try to get freedom. Like you should stay in your assigned place. This is not me. Do the research. What he was thinking about was the benefits of salvation. Let me tell you what he was not thinking about. Their joy in it. What wasn't moving him was delight in him and the benefits thereof. Delight in us, people who we've been set free. Now, he didn't see them two partying at the same party, then going off into the same freedoms. What I'm here to tell you is that true people who go out, to seek sinners and befriend sinners, that sinners become saints, they wind up giving people the friend of sinners that they may become saints and then they do it for their joy and they do it because it's his joy. That's my point. This is the gospel. God makes enemies friends and then he takes human enemies and then makes them friends because they too have found that true joy is in Jesus. And so you see Levi at the table, you see other tax collectors and sinners at the table, and you see Jesus at the same table. What church is, is where you who have a joy in Jesus comes with me who has a joy in Jesus to the place where Jesus is our joy. Let's go, Luce. Is it me? Now what this is not, because some people like the fact that Jesus hung with sinners to give them a license to go still hang around sin. The text, and if you're looking at it, notice what the text says. It says, tax, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus for there were many who followed him. See, it doesn't say that Jesus was with them It says that they were with him. In other words, sometimes people love to talk about Jesus hanging with tax collectors and sinners because they still want to go where they used to go and do what they used to do or at least do what they now do around the people they used to do it with. But you notice here. This is the scene of people who found that Jesus' posture toward people does not exempt him from going and still being the show. He is the host, even though he's in Levi's house. Can the Lord Jesus take up residence? Can the Lord Jesus have your home? Can he have your mic? Can he have your paintbrush? Can he have your skills? He would love to leverage it as a place where he befriends sinners through you and introduces them him, the friend of sinners. He's the main attraction. They're following him. Now, let me skip to the end. Jesus proactively and powerfully calls sinners to himself. Jesus does it for his joy and for their joy in it. Now, forgiveness of sin and this friendship with Jesus can only be had by those who know their sinners and do not presume on their righteousness. In other words, this only happens for people who come understanding their sinfulness and don't presume on their righteousness. Watch this, verse 16 and 17. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Here's the news flash. Jesus saves sinners. But that's not all. Jesus only saves sinners. Ah, Jesus saves sinners. Amen. (laughs) Jesus only saves sinners. That's something else. In other words, when people are not that bad, he says, well, I didn't come for you. It reminds me when I say, well, I mean, I'm better than them. Okay, but I didn't come from you. I came for bona fide sinners who know they're sinners. I hate going to the ER because all my symptoms usually get better right when I'm at the ER. And then fall off when I leave. I hate that because when you come to the ER, they're like looking at you like, nope, not visibly, demonstrably sick, though the sick need the doctor. <laughs> some people will come to God like, but I'm not that bad. But some people will talk, tell you, yeah, but I'm not as bad as the next person. OK, well, that's not who he came for anyway. He came for people who understand themselves to be sinners. This idea of being a sinner, again, this is something that our, comf- our culture is not comfortable with. I couldn't even talk to text it. I was like, adding this last minute. So I was like, yeah, because sin and sin. And every time I said sin, it said soon, and then it said sent. And I was like, no, sin, soon. Sin, 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 sent. Like, I'm like, I'm saying sinner, center. I'm like, no. So even, it's not, I don't think it's in the vocabulary of the culture. He's not saying sin or sinner. That's such an old, outdated word. But it's only sinners who Jesus comes to save. There was this pastor I used to sit under named James Boyce. And he told the story, again, and I like it because he tells the story of this this bishop that was at a prayer breakfast. And I guess in his day, the same thing. And he was saying, you know what? People are not sinners anymore. He says, well, people don't even believe it. because He says, churches don't talk about sin because the congregation doesn't like it. He says, and then the jurist, I guess in the legal world, they change sin to crime. He said, and then the psychiatrist, they call it a complex. He says, and so then somebody will say it's because your mom loved you too much. Somebody else will say because your father didn't love you enough. Somebody else will say it's because of the milk that you had. Somebody else will say it was lead in the wall. He says, by the time we finish, nobody's a sinner. There's something, they're just not sinners. We're Christians, gang. We believe in declaring. We're sinners saved by grace. Sinners turned saints. Forgiveness of sin and friendship with God can only be had by those who acknowledge their sinfulness and don't presume on their righteousness. The scribes and the Pharisees, people who thought they were sinners, they used to pray, I thank God I'm not like the Gentile and I'm not like a woman. Again, the Pharisees and the scribes used to pray every day, thanking God they were not a woman or a Gentile. And thought talk, talks of them looking over at Jesus, eating with people who they thought were sinners. And he would say, I don't understand why you're eating with them. Of course, they don't deserve you to have anyone eating with them. And the Lord Jesus is like, this is who I came for. This is who I came for. Any sinners in the building? Anybody know they were born in sin, shaped in iniquity? Anybody know that if Adam and Eve could sin in paradise, that you and me can sin coming out the hood? <laughs> Coming off the block, trailer park, the farm, if that's you, burbs. In other words, it doesn't matter where you come from. Sin is crouching at your door and it gets the best of us. But Christ would say, who knows it? Now let me in. Let me end this by saying, how does this holy God turn true sinners into saints? Romans chapter 3, read it when you get home, makes this case. Nobody's righteous. No, not one. No one seeks God. No, not one. The Bible says that God has to come your way and powerfully proclaim shackles, loose them. The shackles of Xbox, the shackles of streaming devices, the shackles of what captures your attention. Come my way, look my way, turn to me and be saved. Because Romans chapter 3 says this, there is a righteousness for sinners. There is a righteousness that's apart from the law. But the law and the prophets talk about it. They talk about this righteousness God will give you. The righteousness is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But they're made right, justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And what I'm here to say is, watch this, here's, here's the tricky part. God put him forward, big word, as a propitiation. Propitiation means to satisfy the requirements of an angry God. Right now, some of these mobsters out here, they'll put a hit out on somebody. He he hasn't paid my money. I want you to go out there and I want you to handle it. Somebody may come and say, we have it. We have your money. Oh, okay. Call the hit off. You know why? Because my wrath has been satisfied. The money you owed me that made me put the hit out on you has been paid. So now I'm satisfied. So now you do not have to do what you had to do because I've been satisfied. The Bible says that Jesus is the propitiation that made God say, you know, the hit. Because the wages of sin is death. So death is coming, right? So death is coming. The death that was coming because of sin now is retracted. So he says, no, God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood. So in other words, his death eliminates the need for you to die. And it says, but look, but look at the beautiful part. This was to show God's righteousness. Because remember my question, my question is, but how? How could God look at us and be sinners and be just to not deal with our sin? Just say, oops, okay, we'll let it go. We'll let bygones be bygones. No, how does God, holy one, let your sin and my sin not give us what we deserve? It says, no, those who believe in him have a propitiation for their sin that comes by his blood. I'm finished. I'm finished. Look, my timer, I got, it's red. I'm finished. Listen. Woo. Y'all see that? This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed all the sins, former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let me tell you what this means. Listen, Listen, every time people think they've been done an injustice, they start arguing. That's not right. To demonstrate I am right and I deal with wrong, God says somebody's got to die. Just doesn't have to be you, sinner. It can be the one who is the propitiation. I used to get the Q&A from my father. This was the test when I was growing up. He says, if you die and you're asked, why should you let me in your heaven? What do you say? He taught me. This is what you say. You shouldn't let me in. Because you're holy and I'm sinful. I'm sick and you're pure. But you said in your word. That if I come to you and acknowledge my sinfulness and claim no righteousness, that you would not only save me, but bring me in and make me your own. Because you befriend sinners and turn sinners into saints. You became the doctor I needed. You sought me out when I wasn't seeking for you. You leave 99 and you come after ones such as me. My father said, that's what you say. And so I ask you today, blueprint, one, have you responded to the seeking of Christ and given your life to him in faith, knowing that only sinners can be saved? Two, are you living your life to see more people come in? And meet this friend of sinners. Is that what you do? Is that what you and your friends do? Is that on the docket when you go to the mall? Is that on the docket when you go to the movies? Is that on the docket when you go to the store? Is that on the docket when you go to the coffee shop? Is that on the docket anymore today? Not religious conversation, merely a calling people and a presenting Christ to them. I'll end with this. One of my favorite books is Words to Winners of Souls. And I'll leave you with this. We take for granted that the object of the Christian ministry is to convert sinners and to edify the body of Christ. No faithful minister, and of course by minister, we're all ministers if you're saved. No faithful minister can possibly rest short of this. Applause, fame, popularity, honor, wealth. All these are vain. If souls are not one, if saints are not matured, our ministry is vain. The question, therefore, which each of us has to answer to his own conscience, has it been the end of my ministry? Has it been the desire of my heart to save the lost and guide the saved? Is it under the influence of this feeling that I continually walk? and live and speak is it for this I pray and toil and fast and weep is it for this that I spend and I am spent counting it next to the salvation of my own soul my chiefest joy to be the instrument of saving others is it for this that I exist to accomplish this what I gladly die He calls sinners, makes them saints. Let's go out there and tell the world. Gracious God and Father. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information about Blueprint Church, visit us online at blueprintchurch.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Blueprint Church. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.